So if I can ask you to stand now and read along with me. Be reading from 1 Samuel 18, verses 12 through 30. This is the word of the Lord. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him, but had not departed from Saul, but had departed from Saul. So Saul removed him from his presence and made him a commander of a thousand. And he went out and came in before the people. And David had success in all his undertakings, for the Lord was with him. And when Saul saw that he had great success, he stood in fearful awe of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David, for he went out and came in before them. Then Saul said to David, Here is my elder daughter Mirab. I will give her to you for a wife. Only be valiant for me and fight the Lord's battles. For Saul thought, Let not my hand be against him, but let the hand of the Philistines be against him. And David said to Saul, Who am I, and who are my relatives, my father's clan in Israel, that I should be son-in-law to the king? But at that time, when Mirab, Saul's daughter, should have been given to David, she was given to Adriel, the Metholahite, for a wife. Now Saul's daughter Michael loved David, and they told Saul, and the thing pleased him. Saul thought, let me give her to him, that she may be a snare for him, and that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. Therefore Saul said to David a second time, you shall now be my son-in-law. And Saul commanded his servants, speak to David in private and say, behold, the king has delight in you, and all his servants love you. Now then the king's son-in-law. And Saul's servants spoke these words in the ears of David. And David said, Does it seem to you a little thing to become the, sink, the king's son-in-law, since I am a poor man and have no reputation? And the servants of Saul told him. Thus and so did David speak. Then Saul said, Thus shall you say to David, the king desires no bride price except a hundred foreskins of the Philistines, that he may be avenged of the king's enemies. Now Saul thought to make David fall by the hand of the Philistines. And when his servants told David these words, it pleased David well to be the king's son-in-law. Before the time had expired, David arose and went along with his men and killed two hundred of the Philistines. And David brought their foreskins, which were given in full number to the king, that he might become the king's son-in-law. And Saul gave him his daughter Michael for a wife. And when Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David, and that Michael, Saul's daughter, loved him, Saul was even more afraid of David. So Saul was David's enemy continually. Then the princes of the Philistines came out to battle, and as often as they came out, David had more success than all the servants of Saul so that his name was highly esteemed. This is the word of God. This is a peculiar text. Let's just acknowledge what is fairly clear. It's a strange text. It's a text about a king who twice promises to give one of his daughters to his arch nemesis, and then it ends with his arch nemesis, who actually is the hero of the story, killing 200 men and delivering their foreskins to the king as a bride price. So what, what are we to make of this text? See, this too is the word of God. 
And so today we want to ask God to help us to understand what it is that we should learn from this text. What is it about this text that is edifying for us in the church of Jesus Christ so many years later in the New Covenant, the other side of the world with different cultural customs? So let's just pause and ask God to help us as we take a look at this, the Word of God. Let's pray. Well, Lord, we thank you that you have spoken plainly and recorded your words in your Scripture. Now help us to read and to understand. We need the help of your Holy Spirit. I need the help of your Holy Spirit. And those who are listening need the help of your Holy Spirit. It's not enough for me to grasp this text. Even if I explain it to the best of my ability, I am too weak for this. But we know that your word will not return to you empty, that by your spirit you can plant it deep into our hearts. And I pray that. Use me in spite of me. Deliver your word to each of us this day. I pray that as we commit ourselves to your word that you would arm us for battle in the spiritual war that we have identified uh, that we wouldn't be casual or lazy or caught off guard, but we would be equipped with a sword, which is your word. That we would be so steeped in the things that you have spoken that we would not be tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine and every slight and major persecution. And I pray for this church that you would bind us together, help us to remain united bound together by love and common cause for Christ. Help us to join ourselves to the house of David and to the son of David, the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior, our King, and our God. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. I see we have a, a few visitors or a few of you have joined us for the first time, at least in this series. We're in a series about the rise of David. And without going through everything, I would encourage, if you haven't heard any of the sermons previous, to, to go back and listen to them. Uh, but in the immediate context here, we've identified that, that, G, uh, that David, which is the ancestor of Jesus, he is on the rise and Saul is on the decline and, and this we have to understand in terms of spiritual warfare. Uh, God has allowed an evil spirit to possess Saul. So the things that Saul are, is doing are on behest of Satan and his demonic army. And the things that David are doing, they may not always be exactly what we would expect David to do, but we know that his fate is in the hands of God. That's just really helpful background to what we're going to look at today. The second thing for understanding today's text is you have to see how it's structured. It's structured in an envelope structure, meaning the, the part at the very beginning is mirrored by the part at the very end of today's reading. So you have 1 Samuel 18, verses 12 to 16 on the front end. That's the, begin, the one side of this envelope. And then on the other end, you have verses 28 to 30. And so... These two bookends or envelopes to the text help us to understand what the main point of the text is. 
So let's just take a look at those uh, bookends again uh, for us. Uh, so this is going to set us up for understanding that middle section, which runs from verses 17 through 27. So the first part of this passage, the first bookend, verses 12 through 16. Let's just read that again. And as I read this, just note certain things, and then when I read the other bookend, verses 28 to 30, I want you to be looking for what is the same. So, verse 12. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. So, Saul removed him from his presence and made him commander of a thousand. And he, that is David, went out and came in before the people. And David had success in all his undertakings, for the Lord was with him. And when Saul saw that he had great success, he stood in fearful awe of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David, for he went out and came in before them. That's the front bracket. Now let's take a look at the back bracket, verses 28 to 30. But when Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David, and that Michal, Saul's daughter, loved him, Saul was even more afraid of David. So Saul was David's enemy continually. Then the commanders of the Philistines came out to battle, and as often as they came out, David had more success than all the servants of Saul, so that his name was highly esteemed. I want to point out five points of similarity between the front bracket and the back bracket, and then we're going to draw some conclusions from those five similarities that will help us to understand what's the thrust of this passage? What is God trying to say to us in this passage? Then we'll look at the middle section to see uh, what, how, how God fills that out. So point number one, that is the first similarity between the front bracket and the back bracket. Number one, it is David who is leading the people in battle. Take a look at verse 13. Saul removes him from his presence and he makes him a commander of a thousand. And this is the point that's really important. He went out and came in before the people. If you go back to chapter 8, and we're not going to go there, but the Israelites want a king like all the other nations, a man to go out and come in before them. And this is a Hebrew way of saying we want a commander-in-chief. To go out and come in is to go out at the head of the army and to, be, to, to lead them in battle, and then to come in is to be the last one off the battlefield. We want a king to lead us in war. And it was Saul who was chosen to do that. But here we're told it's David that goes out and comes in. Look down at verse 30. It's the same thing in the, in the back bracket. Whenever the commanders of the Philistines came out to do battle, and as often as they came out, it was David who had more success. He's the de facto leader of Israel from a military point of view. He is doing the thing that Israel asked for a king to do. That's point number one. And notice it's not Saul. Point number two, the Lord is with David. Now, 
this is really important because it's the narrator that is telling us this. Remember we said many weeks back that sometimes the, the narrative is filled with ambiguity. We don't really know how to evaluate some things sometimes unless we read carefully and weigh our options. Here it's absolutely clear. There's an evil spirit ravaging Saul, but the Lord is with David. And the narrator will say it three times. Take a look at verse 12. Saul was afraid of David. Why? Because the Lord was with him. Now, that is infracted, so the narrator is saying that, but that statement is infracted from Saul's point of view, which is also very interesting. Not only is the narrator affirming that the Lord is with David, Saul knows it. Because that's the reason that Saul is afraid of David. He's afraid of David because he perceives and knows that the Lord is with him. And parentheses just for a moment you go forward to the to the gospels and the demons are afraid of jesus same thing saul is filled with an evil spirit possessed and he is afraid of the one that is filled with the holy spirit same thing when the demons come face to face with jesus uh, they don't do battle with him they're afraid of him because they know that he is God and he is filled anointed with the holy spirit that tells us something about how we ought to fight this war the demons are afraid of us. Satan himself is afraid of us because the Lord is with us. We are united with Christ. End of parentheses. Take a look at verse 14. David had success in all of his undertakings. Why? Because the Lord was with him. That's the front bracket. Now look at the back bracket. Verse 28. But when Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David. Again, this is stated by the narrator, but it's also infracted from Saul's point of view. Again, uh, front bracket, back bracket, Saul is afraid of David because he sees and perceives and knows that the Lord is with David and not with him. That's point number two. Point number three, David had success in all his undertakings. So in his undertakings, these are military in nature. He, he is a successful general over the armies of God's people. Take a look at verse 14. David had success in all of his undertakings. Now take a look at verse 30. David had more success than all the servants of Saul. Now that statement of success in both instances, front bracket, back bracket, is tied to the Lord being with David. Point number four, which we've already mentioned, but let's make it explicit. Three times in these bracketed path, uh, texts, we're told that Saul is afraid of David. We see it in verse 12, verse 15, and in verse 29. In verse 12, it's just that he is afraid. In verse 15, he's in fearful awe. And in verse 29, he was even more afraid. So we, what we see here is an escalation of Saul's fear of David. He's becoming increasingly afraid of David. And what we're going to see is that's tied directly to Saul's knowledge of what David is doing and his inability to stop David. That is, David is rising in power. And Saul knows it. He's trying to thwart it, but he can't. And so he's afraid. Because he knows that the victory belongs to David. Finally, point number five, David is loved. One thing I want you to notice as you read through this part of the Bible is we never hear about what David thinks or feels toward anyone. Uh, we're never told that David loved anyone except the Lord. 
but people love David. People are drawn to David. Verse 16, all Israel and Judah loved David. And then you go down to verse 28, it's Michal, Saul's daughter, that loved David. And then it's implied in verse 30 that David is highly esteemed. What can we conclude from these five points of similarity? Do you see how these two brackets are very similar? Because that's really important if you're going to interpret this text. If you're going to understand what happens in between these passages, you have to see these points of connection between the brackets. Well, what can we conclude? Let's conclude three things. Number one, this passage is writing a contrast between David and Saul. David is rising. Saul is falling. It's David, not Saul, that is going out and coming in. And that's significant, especially because of chapter 8 and what kings were expected to do. Secondly, within this first point, it's all Israel and Judah that love David. They don't love Saul. Third, in this first point, David has more success than all the servants of Saul. It's his name that is highly esteemed, not Saul's name that is highly esteemed. David is on the rise. Saul is on the fall. And, and this gives you a sense of inevitability. This is happening. There's nothing that will stop this because Saul is filled with a, a, a demon and David is filled with the Spirit of the Lord. Second conclusion that we can draw from these brackets is the scope of this. It, this, is, this is being played out in front of the nation. You, you see in verse 30, uh, sorry, go, go to verse uh, 16, not verse 30 yet. Verse 16, all Israel and Judah loved David, for he went out and came in before them. So before we get into this middle section of Saul's daughters, in that front bracket, this is being played out on a national stage. The scope is national. This is what everyone in the nation is able to see. And people have switched their allegiances in the nation from Saul to David. It's really important to see that. Now, you go down uh, to verse uh, 28, and we see that the scope is not only national, the scope of this is simultaneously within the house of Saul. So just as all Israel and Judah love David, so also a daughter of the king loves David. And so this, these are symmetrical statements, except one is on the national stage and one is in the family of Saul itself. And, and, and let us remember also in 18 verse 1, chapter 18 verse 1, that Jonathan, the crown prince, loves David. So you have two children of Saul who love David. You have all Israel and Judah, or sorry, that loves David, and you have all Israel and Judah that loves David. So the third thing that we want to draw in conclusion to this is ask the question, why is this dual scope important? Well, why is it important that this is being sketched on the national level and also on the national level? Number one, Saul's house is the royal house. This is the most powerful family in the nation. And so the two go together. What happens in the royal house, in the first family, it has implications for the whole nation. 
And David, knowing that he's been anointed and he has decided, as we've seen from chapter 17 forward, he's going to try and take what has been promised to him by anointing, has two options before himself with regard to Saul's house. He can either destroy Saul's house, which was common practice when you have competing kings in the ancient world. So you either destroy Saul's house or you co-opt Saul's house. That is, you rise up within it and you take it over. You, you decapitate the head, to use the imagery of chapter 17, and take the house. It seems that what we see happening here, David has decided for the latter. He is going to try to rise up within the royal house, take out Saul, and become the head of that royal house. Saul knows this. We do not... We do not have nearly enough empathy for Saul. If it wasn't enough that he is being ravaged by an evil spirit, we should have empathy for him in that. But more than that, Saul knows that he has an enemy rising up within his own house. And put yourself in poor Saul's position. It is so much easier to fight an enemy that is trying to take you down. It's so much easier, to, to put it in, into our understanding, to, to identify an enemy who's outside the church trying to persecute you from the outside. It's so much more difficult to fight an enemy from inside. Saul's in a terrible position. It is much harder to fight an enemy that is grafting himself in. So that's where we're at. When we step back and see what's happening here, we see the rise of David, we see the fall of Saul. We see this playing out on the national scale and also within the family of Saul itself. And we see that these two must go together if we're going to understand what is between them. So let's take a look at this middle section, the middle part of this passage. This is the the meat of the passage. Within the middle section, between these two outer brackets, we have two subsections. So the first subsection runs from verses 17 to verses 19. And we might title uh, this subsection, David's Matrimony with Merib. This is daughter number one. The second subsection runs from verses 20 to 27. And we might title this subsection, David's Matrimony with Michal daughter number two. So even there you see the symmetry, right? You have a potential matrimony with daughter number one, then you have a potential matrimony with daughter number two, Merib and Mikael. That's going to be important. So let's take a look at these two episodes. They are meant to be understood together uh, within the bracket of what we've just talked about. One last thing before we take a look at at this text itself. We must note something cultural, historical that is not always self-evident to us because we live in a different time. In the time that this was written, so at the time, or not even when it was written, when this played out, there's a political edge to this that we have to see. Any kind of sexual advance by marriage or not. So you have marital alliances, but you also have sexual um, conquests in the ancient world. Any kind of sexual advance on the women of a sitting king 
whether they be wives, daughters, nieces, servant girls, whether it be a royal harem, or what have you. Any woman that is connected to the sitting king, if you make a sexual advance on any woman who has a connection to the king, you are making one of two statements. Either you are establishing an alliance with that king, or you are making a claim on the throne. You have to see that. If we don't have eyes to see that, we will not understand this passage. That's why there's this very delicate dance going on between Saul and David. Because both of them and, and all of Israel and Judah understand that what happens with the, the women of Saul, and I don't mean that in a derogatory way, that w- word women is just to be all-encompassing. Wives, daughters, servants, what have you. Any woman connected to Saul, whatever happens to those women is communicating loud and clear without ambiguity to all of the nation the intentions of the man who has that sexual connection with a woman of the king. That's why it's very delicate. Both parties are being very careful. Now, David is not in a position to make an alliance with the house of Saul. There's no alliance to be made. The only thing that should be expected of David is to be in full submission to his king, which means, and this is before we even look at the text, both Merab and Michal represent the very throne of Israel. So while while Saul and David and the servants of Saul and everyone is talking about Merab and Michal, and this is not very nice in our cultural sensitivity, and this does not mean that I'm objectifying these women, but really they're not talking about the women. They're talking about the throne. It's really important to see. So let's take a look at that first section, uh, verses 17 to 19. Matrimony with Merib, daughter number one. We start in verse 17 with Saul's offer. And if we're going to contextualize Saul's offer, why does Saul do this? If, if Saul is afraid of David, if Saul sees that David is on the rise, if he sees that the Lord is with David, why offer him his daughter, which is offering him the throne? Remember also, previously in the chapter, the crown prince has taken off of his clothes, his royal garments, and put them on David. So David is going out and coming in in battle, wearing the clothes of the crown prince. Everybody loves him, and now the king is going to offer him the royal princess, which is offering him the throne. Why would he do that? You have to see it in light of chapter 17, verse 25. It is worthwhile going back and reading this, so just flip backwards. Remember when David was delivering that care package of cheeses to the, to the commanders of his brothers for his father? He sees what's going on, and he hears that there's a reward if somebody will kill the giant. Let's just remind ourselves of what that reward was. Verse 25. The men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel. And here's the reward. The king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches He will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. Three things, riches, a royal princess, and uh, conscription-free status, tax-free status in the kingdom. Now, Saul made a major mistake in promising that kind of a reward. But now he's stuck. 
because somebody has gone out and killed that giant from Gath, and his name is David. So Saul is stuck, and so he, he's probably getting pressure from all kinds of uh, corners in his kingdom. Look, king, your royal highness, your very word is on the line. You said, and, and we have a lot of witnesses, and David knows what the reward was, and you offered him a royal princess. That's, the, that's what's going on here. So we're going to see Saul's reluctance, but he offers his daughter because he said he would, and he's being pressured to do so. We'll see, we'll see that bear out right, right now. So let's take a look. Verse 17 shows us Saul's offer, but uh, let's look at it in three parts. Saul says to David, here's my elder daughter, Merib. I will give her to you for a wife. Now, if that was the end of it, we're, we're doing just fine. Saul's keeping his word. This is the reward that David had earned. Saul is not doing David any favors. He is just giving him what he deserves. And when he made that promise, when Goliath was still alive, whether he knew it or not, he was promising the man who kills Goliath will have a claim on the throne. But Saul's not done. He says, only be valiant for me and fight the Lord's battles. First of all, we know that David's already doing this. David is already acting valiantly. He's already going out and coming in. Uh, so, but what should disturb us is that Saul adds to the, the conditions. I will give you a princess if you continue to lead my people in and out of battle. And the thinking might have been this. Once he gets his ticket to the throne, he might stop putting himself in harm's way. Because now he's, he's, he's built up his reputation militarily. He's got his princess. Now he just bides his time in the safety of the royal court. And Saul says, I'm having none of that that's not fair for Saul to do that because that wasn't the deal back in chapter 17. Now, take a look at the third part. We get the motive of Saul given to us by the narrator, and this is very rare. So there's no question why Saul adds, only be valiant and fight the Lord's battles. It's not because he wants to see Saul, uh, David's success. It's because he hopes that by leading God's people in and out of battle, David will be killed. Deal with the problem. Third part of verse 17, for Saul thought, let my hand not be against him. In translation, I want to kill this guy. But if I do it, everyone will hate me because everyone loves him. So let my hand not be against him, but let the hand of the Philistines be against him. So there's the offer. It's, uh, it's a half offer at best of what he had promised David, what David had earned. And the throne is hanging in the balance. Saul is making a wager, a gamble, that although he is giving David the throne, that he'll be killed and that will be dealt with. How does David respond? Take a look at verse 18. And David said to Saul, Who am I? And who are my relatives, my father's clan in Israel, that I should be son-in-law to the king? Now, if you're just reading this passage, you think, oh, David is such a good guy. You know, he, he's so modest and humble. He's not after the throne. He's not trying for anything. He doesn't think he deserves a princess. 
That's not true at all. He's being very careful. And you have to realize that this promise is happening in the royal court, presumably. And so there are lots of people watching what's going down. All the most powerful people in the kingdom would be there for this royal engagement from king to David. And so David says, well, who am I? This is not a sincere question. This is a rhetorical question. And it has real answers. Who am I that I should be the the king's son-in-law? You're the man that killed Goliath. See, he's prompting the, the answer from those who are watching. Oh, David, don't be so modest. This is your right reward. This is what you earned. This is what the king promised you. You put your life in danger to kill Goliath. Now take your reward. It's it's politically brilliant. Secondly, he says, uh, who are my relatives and my father's clan in Israel? We went over that last week. Abner, whose son is this? I don't know. David comes with the head of Goliath, and they ask him, first of all, Young man, whose son are you? I am the son of Jesse, a Bethlehemite. Drops the microphone, walks away. Why? Because Bethlehem's in Judah, and the king is promised to Judah. So here, in the, in the midst of this, this royal proposal, who am I? What have I done to merit being the king's son-in-law? You're the man that killed Goliath. And who's my family? We're just a bunch of nobodies over there in Bethlehem. You're from the royal tribe. And he's prompting those answers by asking this rhetorical question in the royal court. Notice what David does not do. He does not refuse to marry Merab. No, no. In fact, David says, yes, give me the the girl. Give me the throne. But he is forcing Saul to admit in the presence of all of his administration two difficult realities, that David has earned his place in the royal family and that David has a royal pedigree. In other words, he's a great candidate to be the next king. Brilliant. So, having been shamed yet again by David, being outplayed, Saul rescinds the offer. He says, well, fine, you can't have her. You're going to make me look like a, a buffoon in the front of my royal court? You can't have her. Take a look at verse 19. And we often don't notice this because we just feel that David said, no, thank you, I don't need to marry the royal princess, but that's not what happened. It's a rhetorical question. Once it's answered, he is set up to marry her. We know that because of this in verse 19. But at the time when Merab, Saul's daughter, should have been given to David, she was given to Adriel, the Maholothite, for a wife. At the time when Merab, Saul's daughter, that's emphasizing this is not a marriage of love, it's a, it's a marriage of politics. When that marriage should have happened, that is, at the time and place when the marriage was going to happen, David was jilted. He stood at the altar and there was no royal princess for him. In fact, what Saul did was he took his daughter and at the very moment that Saul or David was preparing for his royal wedding, he marries her to this other guy, and we don't know who he is, Adriel the Maholothite, for a wife. He's a big nobody in Scripture. He never comes up again. So it's not David that had cold feet. It's Saul who had cold feet. No, 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 no. I'm not going to give you the throne that easily, David. Now, 
Remember what I said, that anyone who is connected to a woman of the king is making a claim on the throne or forming an alliance. So we have to ask the question, is Adriel a threat to Saul? Technically, yes. Yes. But he is from Abel Mahola, which is way up north in Manasseh. Now one thing we know about Manasseh, number one, it's not a royal tribe. Nobody is looking for a king to come from Manasseh. Secondly, their, their blessing in Genesis 49 is pathetic. They, they have no real future. They're not going to be the power brokers. Thirdly, half of their tribe is on the other side of the Jordan. So Saul gives the, the, the crown princess to a weak man, a nobody in Scripture who never comes up again, from a weak tribe far away. And he just takes a gamble. He says, yes, Adriel will now have a claim on the throne, but I'll deal with him. I don't want to deal with David. It seems to have worked. Now, put yourself in their shoes. Can you appreciate the strain on Saul? We're, we're so programmed to just be so pro-David, and, and the text is pro-David. David is from the house of the Messiah. But just put yourself in poor Saul's shoes for a minute. He just can't, he's just backed himself, he's painted himself into a corner, everything he does fails. Uh, he's got this evil spirit, and David just keeps on winning, 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 besting him at every turn. Now, how would you feel if you were David? You got your tuxedo on, you got your best man and your ring bearer, and you are publicly embarrassed because the princess has been married to some nobody who hails from the north. What must the kingdom have said? I believe that the kingdom would have been outraged. Let's take a look at subsection number two. This is take two, matrimony number two, daughter number two, not Mirab, but Michal. Starts. So this new episode starts in verse 20, and we find out that Michal loves David. This pairs her with Judah and all Israel. So just as the nation loves David, so Michal loves David. And what we might read in here is that just as the kingdom was outraged at what Saul did, Michal was outraged at what Saul did. It's not right, Dad. It's not right. You promised him. He earned it. Everyone loves him. He's fighting your battles. He should marry a crown princess. Now, whether or not that's how she felt, we don't know entirely. But the word love in the Bible is not always just about warm feelings, though she probably did. Now, Saul's daughter, Michal, loved David. And they told Saul, and the thing pleased him. Why did it please Saul? Well, because Saul thinks that this is another opportunity to put David in harm's way. Fine, I'll use my daughter again to threaten David's life. Take a look, it's explicit there in verse 21. Saul thought, let me give her to him that she may be a snare to him and that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. Therefore, Saul said to David a second time, you shall now be my son-in-law. Now, the problem here is what would you think if you were David? How can I trust you? We, we, went, we just did this. And I was cuckolded at the altar. So why would I do this again? 
And that's exactly what Saul knows too. So take a look at verses 22 and following. Saul commanded his servants, speak to David in private and say, behold, the king has delight in you and all his servants love you. Now then become the king's son-in-law. And Saul's servants spoke the words in the ears of David. Now why does Saul send his servants? Sometimes when we read this, we think that Saul is pleading with David to marry his daughter. That's not really what's happening. Saul has a credibility problem. So he sends uh, his servants to make the case on his behalf. No, really, Saul's honest this time. He, he really wants you to be his son-in-law this time. So, so let's go through this. So, so they're there not to um, plead with David that, to marry the, the princess. This is exactly what David wants to do, but to convince David that Saul this time will follow through. Now, on the heels of this, Saul makes his offer. This is how Saul thinks he's going to kill David, and David takes it. The, the servants go back. Oh, oh, no, sorry. Saul's servants spoke these things in the word. I, I, I skipped something. Saul's servants spoke these words in the ears of David, and this is David's response. So before we get to the offer, David says this in verse 23. Does it seem to you a little thing to become the king's son-in-law since I am a poor man and have no reputation? And again, we think that David is being super humble here, but he's not. This is another set of rhetorical questions that put Saul in a very uncomfortable position. Saul, David is forcing Saul to admit two more very difficult realities. What are these realities? Is it a small thing to become the king's son-in-law? I'm a poor man. I don't have a dowry. Go back to 1725. What was promised to the man who killed Goliath? Lavish riches. By saying to the servants who are going to leak it to the royal court and get, take it back to Saul, what David is saying is, where's my riches? Why would I trust the king to give me his daughter? He hasn't given me any riches. Right? You see the connection? I don't trust this man. He's not trustworthy. So that's the first thing. The second thing, he says, I have no reputation. That's not true either. You're the man that killed Goliath. You're the man who's going out and coming in. You're the man that everybody loves. You're the man who is highly esteemed. And David knows that. And so does Saul. So what he's saying is, where's my riches? And, and, and secondly, don't mess around with me this time, Saul. I could mobilize the nation against you in a heartbeat if I had to. Man of no reputation. I'm a man of great reputation. You see what he's doing? He is again putting Saul into this corner. So here's Saul's offer. Back to where I had jumped forward. Servants of Saul told uh, told Saul this, thus and so did David speak. So then this is what Saul says, thus you shall say to David, tell him to trust me, the king desires no bride price except a hundred foreskins of the Philistines that he may be avenged of the king's enemies. What's Saul's motive? Well, before we have to read it in the Bible, if you have to go out and collect a hundred foreskins, what are the chances that you come back alive? It's not easy to collect one foreskin, let alone a hundred. So Saul is putting David in a very difficult position. I don't want any money for the bride price. I just want a hundred foreskins. Oh, is that all? No, no big deal. 
Uh, so that's what Saul is banking on, that men will be very protective of that particular part of themselves, and they will not allow David to collect the bride price. That's exactly what we find out here. Now Saul thought to make David fall by the hand of the Philistines. Not a bad plan, Saul. So what does David do? When his servants told David these words, it pleased David to be the king's son-in-law. It's not as though David didn't want a crown princess from the very beginning. But what pleased him was an opportunity to yet again shame Saul. Fine, if that's what he wants, that's what I'll do. The Lord is with me. I will bring him what he wants. And he will yet again be shamed in the eyes of his house and in the eyes of all the nation. And everyone will see that I am righteous and innocent and good and pleasing and right to sit on the throne. And they will see that he is a raving madman, a lunatic that asks the unaskable of me. And so it pleased David. This was an opportunity for David to yet again prove himself as the king in waiting. And so we continue to read. Before the time had expired, I kind of like that. David, <laughs> I'm going to give you a week. <laughs> you, have a you have a deadline on this. Just get out there, get those uh, trophies for me, and bring them home. So before the time had expired, David arose and went, along with his men, and he killed 200 of the Philistines. And David brought their foreskins which were given in full number to the king that he might become the king's son-in-law. And Saul having no choice, I added having no choice, but that's the, the reality. And Saul having no choice gave him his daughter Michal for a wife. Having no choice, he gave David the throne. Now, I don't want to dwell on this uh, dowry, but the Bible does, so I just want to note it for you. David brought their foreskins. We imagine he brought them in a little bag of some kind. And what I have to point out to you is that secondary clause, which were given in full number to the king. He didn't just throw the bag at the king and say, I did it. One. <laughs> Two. Two hundred. Like he drew it out one at a time. It's gross. Why is David doing that? Why? He's making a point. You wanted to kill me? You thought that 100 was too hard for me? It was too much? I give you double. And the longer he draws that out, the better the story it is for the royal court and the more likely it is to circulate to the ends of the kingdom. So it's gross, but it's important. These two subsections in the middle of these outer brackets help to fill out David's character arc. First, we have to ask the question, why did David pick or take for himself 200. Why not just give Saul the 100? If there was any doubt whether or not David wanted to marry Merab, it is gone now. Here's 100 for Merab, and here's 100 for Michal. You were wrong to take your first daughter from me. He's making a point. It's another public shaming of the king. 
What we learn here about David in this, in this section is, well, several things. First of all, David reminds us a lot of Jacob. Another side note before I explain that. This is why it's important that we read the Bible from beginning to end, not because we need to apply any particular passage to our life that moment, but because I can't talk to you about Jacob unless you know who Jacob is. I, I can't say, look at how David and Jacob are so alike. I can't then start to string together implications, complications, and then work our way up to some profound theological point. So reading the Bible for the sake of reading the Bible is really important so that we can talk about the Bible and make connections and derive theology that will help us to understand the gospel. So that's the end of that side note. But what I want to, to tell you today is David is a lot like Jacob. Why? Jacob had intended to marry Rachel. And on his wedding night, Rachel was taken from him by his father-in-law and in her place was given Leah. And Jacob, though he worked, had to work seven years for, for his first wife, had to work another seven years for his second wife. David was promised one daughter. She was taken away from him on his wedding night, and he was eventually given the second daughter, and he had to pay the bride price of 100 plus 100, which is parallel to seven and seven. So, so that's really intentional here. We, when you think about David, if you want to understand David, get to know Jacob. And that happens in the Bible sometimes. This character is being described a lot like that character in the Bible. And you've got to bring them together. And, and if we were doing a family history, you know, we all have this. You're so much like your grandfather. You know, you act just like your grandfather. That's what's being said here. David is a lot like Jacob. Now, what do we know about Jacob. First thing we know about Jacob is that Jacob hollowed out Laban's house and took away all his riches, which is exactly what David is planning to do with Saul. I'm going to graft myself into your house. You can give me two daughters, and you can trick me and take one and give me the other and demand double dowry, but I'm going to hollow out your house. I'm going to take your house. I'm going to take all of your riches, all of your power, all of your reputation, and I'm going to supplant you. That's what Jacob did to Laban. That's what... David is doing with Saul. What else do we know about Jacob's character? Well, his very name means supplanter, which means to, to supplant, to, to take the place of another. He was born grabbing the heel of his brother, and he was named supplanter because uh, it was told to him that the, to his mother that the younger or the older will serve the younger, that the younger, Jacob was going to supplant his older brother, his twin brother, and he did. That's exactly what David's trying to do. He's trying to supplant the first king. He's the second king trying to take the place of the first king. Jacob was the second son trying to take the place of the first son, Esau. And they, Jacob did this by deception. He dressed up in Esau's clothes and put goat skin on himself and talked like his, his brother and made stew like his brother and tricked his father into giving him the blessing. David is going to take the throne by deceiving people. But we also know that Jacob and David were both God's choice and both Jacob and David received God's blessing. And we just got to work through the, the tension of that. We're going to see in the following chapters that this parallel of David and Jacob continues to be developed. So how do we wrap this up? Put a bow on it. Well, let's remember these outer brackets. 
David is rising. Saul is falling. Saul is keenly aware of what's going on, but he can't stop it. This is God's plan. This is God's will. It will happen. Saul withheld Merah, but he was backed into a corner and ended up giving David a crown princess anyway. David is playing a politically shrewd game. Now, whether or not we want to evaluate that as good or bad, righteous or evil, that's not the point this morning. But what we have to acknowledge, what we have to see, is David is not just, oh, shucks, you know, I don't really want it that bad at all. No, he is making a series of very calculated, very intentional, very shrewd moves to take the throne from Saul. He's not passively biding his time. Saul has reason to consider David to be in full treason, because he is. David uses two royal weddings to remind Saul and the royal court and, by extension, the whole kingdom of four things. Number one, I earned my royal bride. Number two, I'm from a royal tribe. Number three, I should have been rewarded with royal riches. And number four, I already have a royal reputation. He makes that fourfold point. Saul hears it loud and clear. So does his court, so does the kingdom. It's tragic that most of the time we don't. But now we do. Fourth, David reminds us of Jacob. Go read about Jacob. You want to understand David? Understand Jacob. Jacob supplanted Esau, fleeced Laban. David, like Jacob, is on the rise. Saul, like Esau and Laban, is on the decline. So what does this passage say to us? Where's the theology? Where's the gospel? Well, it's not easy to see it. I mean, I think part of it is this is one episode within a broader work of literature and scripture, so it's hard to just connect straight dots. But there are some things that we can say. Number one, and this is something we've said already, this passage reminds us that David is a complicated man. We cannot just read this as if David is righteous and one-dimensional, playing a harp, writing psalms. He's a political animal, brilliant and vicious. And that reminds us that David needs a savior. And that, is, that leads itself to some massive theology. We cannot just read David as sort of one category of man of faith and then put us in a different category. We're in the same boat, going the same direction. We all need the son of David to save us from our wily ways and our sin. Secondly, what this is showing us, have you ever wondered, well, what is spiritual warfare anyway? What is it? Spiritual warfare is complicated, it's vague, it's not very clearly defined in the Bible? How do the demons attack us? How do they um, try and get us down? Well, one way is they work through people. Saul is, for, for as much as I empathize with Saul, he is doing the work of the devil trying to keep David off the throne. 
And so we should expect that in spiritual warfare, it's not always the devil whispering in our ear. Somehow, and I don't know how, he motivates people to do and to think and to feel and to act in certain ways. And we have to be shrewd like David is shrewd. Maybe not as shrewd as David, but we we do need to be aware that something's not right. And we need to be wise and, and careful in how we respond. And finally, this, this passage is again showing us how Jesus' kingdom is established in the first place. We want to begin to see continuity between the kingdom of David and the kingdom of Jesus Christ that we're going to live in and we are in. And the rise of Christ's kingdom was not always just filled with moral purity. God established the kingdom of Christ with a dowry of 200 foreskins, which reminds us that through salvation history, to get us from Genesis 3 all the way to Revelation 21, much grace is required. God is working through sinners He's working through sinners that he has elected for favor and love, like David. He's working through sinners who are possessed by demons, like Saul. God is sovereign over all things. He's in control of every government, every authority, every power. And he will bring all things together for good. He will use both his enemies and his children through our sin and their sin to bring about what he has planned and predestined and so we can take comfort in the fact that even when we misstep when we sin when we make mistakes we're not going to thwart God's plan Christ will return he will raise us from the dead and we will live with him forever if he worked through David if he worked through Saul he can work through us let's pray Oh, Lord, I pray that you would bless our reading and interpretation of this scripture. Help us to be mindful of spiritual attack. Help us to be shrewd and wise. We thank you for your grace, which covers all of our missteps, all of our sin. We know that your perfect end will come to pass in spite of us and by your grace, even because of us. Continue to use us individually and as one local church to further your plan of redemption. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.